Today's reading is another Old Testament story. We're going into characters in the Old Testament. A lot of times you can hear things like direct, right? Jesus says um, in Matthew, uh, you need to, your father forgives you and therefore you need to forgive. But what he actually says is forgive those who have sinned against you so your father will forgive you, right? So we have these direct examples in scriptures about forgiveness that we have. I think there's power, however, in story. And the power in stories that we have in scripture of forgiveness, I think can stay with us just like Jesus's direct explicit instructions on forgiveness. And today we're gonna hear a story from Genesis, the first book in the Bible about forgiveness. And it's a story about a person named Joseph. And as usual, you can't just jump into the middle of the novel and understand what's going on. So we're going to share a little bit about the background of Joseph. Joseph was one of the brothers and sons of Jacob. And Joseph was one of the younger brothers in this large family. And Joseph was not a great brother growing up. <laughs> He was one that would really instigate and make his older brothers angry at him. For example, they'd be sitting down with their family for morning breakfast, you know, having um, frosted flakes and toast and coffee, <laughs> and talking, and he would say things like, I had the best dream last night. I dreamed when I was older, y'all would all bow down before me and grovel, and I would be your leader. He loved telling that story. And believe it or not, his siblings did not like that story. <laughs> that really made them angry. And he loved telling that story. Likewise, he was also his father's pet. Where all the other kids got just plain old clothes, you know, blue t-shirt and, and Wrangler jeans and tennis shoes, just regular basic stuff, he had a coat of many colors. That was this beautiful jacket, right, that made him stand out. So you can see how his brothers were kind of ticked off at him, and maybe his dad too, because he was not the best little brother. So one day their anger reached a tipping point where they took him and threw him in a pit and took his jacket and put goat's blood on it and took him to his father and said, I'm sorry, but Joseph was killed and left him in that pit to die. Unbeknownst to them, a salesperson went by or traveling by and saw the pit and saw Jacob and Joseph rather and grabbed him and took him to Egypt and sold him into slavery into Egypt. And there Joseph's missteps continued because he had a, a strange interaction with an army leader's uh, wife, right? That was a misunderstanding. They got him thrown in jail. And while he was in jail, um, his ability to interpret dreams, this gift God gave him, came to the forefront. And he was known as somebody who could interpret dreams. And the Pharaoh at the time had this dream he did not understand. It was a dream about some and then none. And he brought Joseph in, and Joseph interpreted that dream to say, we got a famine coming of seven years. We got to store up grain and all that we have so that we make it and our people make it. And the Pharaoh was so impressed, he made him head of the Department of Agriculture in his administration. <laughs> Later on, he became this Egyptian viceroy, even, and became this great leader. 
And the famine hit the land just as he said, and eventually it affected Egypt and it affected his family and, and Jacob and all his sons and all his daughters. And his brothers came to Egypt looking for help and food. And the person that met with them was Joseph in this Egyptian outfit and speaking Egyptian, not Hebrew. And he knew who his brothers were right away, right? And he had this back and forth with them, like he talked to them and he would like plant silver in their bags and pretend they stole it. You know, he had these, this dialogue with them and I don't know if he was angry and he was toying with them to test them and get revenge. I don't know if he was testing their character, but every now and then he'd run out of the room and he'd cry. He wouldn't let them see him cry. And finally, he broke down. And that's where the text picks up today from Genesis 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me in here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there since there are five more years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it's my mouth that speaks to you all. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon Benjamin's neck and wept while Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Church, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, I ask that you hide me behind your cross so that your focus would be on 
you and not me. As your Holy Spirit works in our hearts and minds today so that we can accept your forgiveness and perhaps extend your mercy, grace, and forgiveness to others. Amen. So, how do you start with this story? How do we understand forgiveness? There's got to be some place you start with this because it's hard to talk about, especially if you've been harmed. And some of us may have been harmed and hurt in ways really deep and harmful. I don't know your story, and your neighbor doesn't know your story, but God knows the story of your hurts. And God knows our story when we've hurt others. So how do we start about forgiveness? I was thinking about that today, and I was driving on the interstate and passed a sign to RDU Airport, and I thought about that. Raleigh-Durham International Airport has flights all over. And right now they have 62 direct flights. You can fly to, straight to Seattle, you can fly straight to LA, you know, St. Louis, um, New York, both airports. You can fly straight to Hartsfield in Atlanta. You can fly a lot of places direct. They fly to six foreign countries. Next year it'll be seven. You can fly to, to England and, and London and Paris and Germany. You can fly to Cancun and Jamaica. You can fly wherever you want to, right, almost. It's a great airport. It's not too big, and it's not too small. It's like a Goldilocks airport. <laughs> you know, it's just right, right? But I know it's getting bigger. But you have to go there first to get somewhere. You can't get any place you want to go if you're flying unless you first go to RDU and go from there. I don't think we can understand forgiveness unless we start with an understanding of salvation and what that means. Salvation is where God works through the gift of Jesus, where we're forgiven and reconciled to God from our sin, our self-centered desires and practices. And that forgiveness works where we ask for forgiveness, right? We repent. The symbol is turning to God. You know, we repent and and change our ways, and God forgives us. It's an act of salvation. And a couple things about salvation that are important to understand, and this comes from one of my favorite authors, Frederick Beekner, about salvation, and it really ties to the United Methodist's emphasis on salvation. The first thing is salvation is an experience first and a doctrine second. It's an experience first. We experience it, and then we can talk about it and write about it and understand it, hopefully, and teach it to our children. We experience God's love and forgiveness first. We have to experience it, right? We can talk about it and explain it, but it starts in our hearts and starts in our churches and grows from there. Something we have to experience. We in this paradox, we lose our life to find it. You know, Jesus says in Matthew, those who find their life will lose it. But those who lose their life will find it. There's something about losing our life and, to God and, and saying, God, forgive me. I want to 
respond to this grace you offer, right? I want to respond to your love and forgiveness and repent and, and be a new person. That's what baptism is, right? You, you die to Christ, new life in Christ, right? You die the old um, with the new. It's something you experience first, and it's a doctrine second. The second thing is a gift. It's not an achievement. We really emphasize that as Methodists. It's a gift. God's this benevolent God who loves us all so much that we have this gift of salvation. And then we respond to it, right? We respond to what God has given us. We respond to God's hand and God's love and God's grace. We say, God, I'm, you know, thank you. I'm responding to you. I don't achieve it. I respond to it. First John says, we love because what? God first loved us. We love because God first loved us. That's why in the Methodist Church, we'll baptize infants, right? And high schoolers and adults, right? We only baptize once because it's a response to what God has done. We baptize infants because we believe, like we just did a few weeks ago, right? We believe that God's already working in the life of that child. And God's always working ahead of us. So it's a gift. It's not an achievement. The third thing is, it's, it's a process, right? It's not a one-time event. We're always responding to God's grace. We're always seeking forgiveness. We're always trying to be so full of God's love that we don't have room for sin and, and these self-destructive behaviors that hurt other people, right? We're always seeking that. We're seeking this perfection, or as Methodists, we call it sanctification, we're seeking this, sanctification. And the fourth thing that Beekner doesn't add that I'll add to it, we're called as people who witness to Jesus to extend God's blessing to others. We're called to extend God's blessing and forgiveness and grace to others. You are called. We are called because we're forgiven people to extend God's grace and mercy and forgiveness to others, to extend this blessing. I think that's what Joseph understood. And I think I get that fourth thing from the story of Joseph. We're called to extend this blessing and grace to others. Well, Joseph's brothers came back. He had every right to be spiteful and angry and bitter for what they did to him. He could have died in that pit, right? He could not have made it. He could have been sold into slavery and killed. Horrible things could have happened. His own family threw him down there. You could argue he had the right for resentment, bitterness, and anger, and retribution. That's kind of the, the way we see things, like retribution is a big thing, especially in our culture. How many movies have you ever seen about something bad happens and the good guys come in and seek retribution, right? It's a common practice, you know? Let's kick the door down. Let's, let's do eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. I understand that. He had every right. But he chose to show mercy, and grace, and forgiveness 
He started out with this uncertainty, as I shared before I read the text, of this test he did with them or these challenges or, you know, he was just, he couldn't decide what to do. But the whole time he was weeping. And then he had it. He sent everybody out of the room and he stopped speaking Egyptian. He started speaking Hebrew. And they heard him. And they knew that he was their brother. And he wept so loudly, which means he sobbed uncontrollably that people walking by outside heard him. That's how much he cried. He offered forgiveness so that he could have reconciliation. He extended this forgiveness to preserve life and reconciliation. And he also, interestingly enough, said, I also saw God working in this big picture. You know, this horrible stuff happened, but you know what? It wasn't y'all who did it. And it wasn't y'all who did all this, it was God who did it. Certainly he thought, you know, Joseph thought he worked with it and he was intelligent and smart and responded. But he gave God the credit, so his brothers, one, couldn't take the credit. Let's see what we did. But two, give the credit to God. Now, a mistake I think we can make when we hear stories like this is assume that Joseph felt like that from day one. I guarantee you, when he was in the bottom of that pit, he wasn't ready to forgive his brothers. And when he was sold into slavery, he probably wasn't ready to forgive his brothers. It's a process. Salvation's a process. Forgiveness. I don't want us to hear this church and think, okay, I got to forgive somebody right now because of this horrible thing they did yesterday. Maybe. But there's a time involved in this. Many years went by before Joseph offered this forgiveness. So I don't want us to assume that forgiveness always happens that quickly because there are some wounds and some harm that runs so deep, right? It may take time to get there. It may not happen right away. And just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean, right, you restore a relationship, some things, some harm, some abuse can be so bad that you don't want to restore the relationship. You know, somebody breaks into your home doesn't mean you keep your doors unlocked, even though you might forgive the person and even reconcile. It doesn't mean you don't have boundaries. But when God leads us to this place of forgiveness, it can take time. And if you are in a place today where you're not ready to forgive somebody, that's okay. Maybe start praying about it and see. There's a story from a book I read a long time ago called Why Forgive? It's a story by a police officer, um, Stephen McDonald in New York City, who in the 80s was on duty and he was shot in Central Park by a teenager and was paralyzed from the neck down. He barely made it through surgery, barely survived. His wife, Patty Ann, was three months pregnant and he was angry after that happened and bitter Rightfully so. He spent 18 months in rehab in New York and Denver, learning to live as somebody who could not move anything from the neck down. His wife, Patty Ann, gave birth to their son, Connor. And he 
eventually was involved in acts of forgiveness and reconciliation. He eventually got to the place where he was meeting with schools, working on nonviolence and forgiveness. He went to Northern Ireland and spoke to people and worked about forgiveness and reconciliation. He did all this. He forgave the person who shot him. But it didn't happen right away. For the first few months, he was angry. He was bitter. And then when his child was born, he started praying to God, I gotta be a different person to be a father. I'm gonna read some of his words. I prayed that I would be changed, that the person I was would be replaced by something new. That prayer was answered with a desire to forgive the young man who shot me. I wanted to free myself from all the negative, destructive emotions that his act of violence had unleashed in me. Anger, bitterness, hatred, and other feelings. I needed to free myself of those emotions so that I could love my wife and our child and those around us. Then shortly after Connor's birth, we held a press conference. People wanted to know what I was thinking and doing. That's when Patty Ann told everyone that I had forgiven the young man who tried to kill me. That was forgiveness. And then he moved to reconciliation. The person who shot him, his name was Shavad Jones. And he said, strangely, we became friends. It began with my writing to him. At first, he didn't answer my letters, but then he wrote back. Then one night, a year or two later, he called me at home from prison and apologized to my wife, my son, and me. We accepted his apology and hoped he and I would work together in the future. Now, their communication lasted a while, and eventually it dissolved, right? They didn't travel the nation working together. And some people said, you know, did that work out? And Officer McDonald said, yeah, we forgave each other. And he says it took time. And he said, sometimes I was still angry. Even after that press conference, I'll still be angry. But he'd pray about it. Salvation is a process, and so can be forgiveness. It can be events, maybe, but it may be something we continue to work on. Maybe there's somebody that God is looking and asking you to forgive. Maybe there's somebody that God is asking you to go to and seek forgiveness. And then maybe by chance, reconciliation. At the end of this story, after Joseph's father Jacob died, his brothers got nervous. They thought, uh-oh, why that the only reason Joseph is being nice to us is because of daddy. <laughs> and now that he's gone, what's going to happen? So they went to him one day, and just like he dreamed, they got on their knees and groveled before him. The old Joseph loved that image. The new Joseph, who understood salvation differently, did not. He said, who am I? I'm not God for you to grovel before me. I've said what I've said, rise. 
New Joseph understood salvation.